When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. There was so much I don't know. And I always felt like because I was a descendant of the enslaved, that there was always going to be this pit stop. And I tried to tell myself, well, you know what? My people have been here for several generations. There has to be something I can recover here. There has to be. So if I set out on this journey and I can return with more than I set out with, then I have succeeded. Do you like books? I'm outlining a new writing project. Who wrote this book? Read it. Read it. Sometimes I'd write something. What are you writing? Have you written anything lately? I'm Amanda Stern, and this is Bookable. On today's show, digging up your roots. You may have signed up for one of those ancestry sites or maybe sent in a sample of your saliva and received DNA results. Cool, right? I'm 2% Neanderthal. But what can those results really tell you about the people and the traditions that inform your personal lineage? Well, our guest today, she decided to find out how the history of her ancestors' migration informs her identity today. Time for an introduction. My name is Morgan Jerkins, and I'm the author of Wandering in Strange Lands, The Daughter of the Great Migration, Reclaims the Reefs. Morgan Jerkins. In Wandering in Strange Lands, Morgan takes a unique approach to understanding where she came from. The book basically is a hybrid. It's family history, and uh, so it's part memoir, uh, part genealogy, um, and part history, and all adventure. And on that adventure, she uncovers a wealth of incredible stories, traditions, and painful surprises. My family uh, uh, was a part of the Great Migration. Uh, which was a, a, an incredible time in American history where millions of African-Americans fled the South and, and scattered across the United States. And they did this in order to avoid racial terrorism. But the problem, what I found, was during this movement, there had been some sense of loss, omissions rather, um, with regards to perhaps uh, cultural customs, beliefs. And a lot of my family members couldn't fill in the dots for me. So what I did was I took a reverse migratory path if you will, going down to the South, across the Mississippi to the Midwest and the West in order to bridge the gap between those who fled and those who remained. And what I found alongside 300 years of family history, that in spite of time and distance, African-Americans of various sub-ethnic groups are connected. From Wandering in Strange Lands, page 14. Every New Year's Eve, I could feel the heat surging in my mother's house. We'd go to a watch night service at church and return home. 
hours later, I would be sequestered in my room upstairs, but the smell of something heavenly would slip through the cracks in the door. I closed my eyes and envisioned the boiling yams or the black-eyed peas marinating in a large black crock pot on the counter. The black-eyed peas require the most attention for this meal. They have to soak in a pot of water overnight. A quick hot water rinse will not do. Then, the peas are drained in a colander before being placed in the crock pot with bacon or smoked turkey legs where they would soften for hours. So how am I going to start this book? And I said, okay, I think I should probably start with food because I feel like no matter where I go in this country, when it comes to soul food, the, the, the plates tend to overlap um, very much so. And I said, okay, so if I'm going to start with food, what is something that has always intrigued me about food in African-American families? And one of the things that intrigued me was um, every New Year's Day, we would get, we would, um, have collard greens for money and uh, black eyed peas for good luck. And um, when I asked my mother, why is it that we do this? She was like, it's just something that black people do. And I was like, no, I don't think that's right. That's not just something that black people do. Uh, and when I researched it, I found out that this this recipe, Hoppin' John, actually came from Low Country, South Carolina. And Low Country, South Carolina, that is the hub of Gullah Geechee people. Now, Gullah Geechee people are important because it is said that they are the sub-ethnic group of African-Americans that has the highest retention of West African customs. It's also said that 80% of African-Americans can trace an ancestor um, who stepped foot on a Charleston dock. And so if that's the case, then I thought that, you know, all African-Americans pretty much are indebted to Gullah Geechee culture. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I knew that I wanted to start there. Amazing. And I love the way that you structured the book because you you structured around the route that you took, but you also structured around these superstitions whose roots you wanted to discover. So I thought that um, it would be interesting to start with... Um, one of those, um, with one of those roots having to do with traditions. And you you had a lot of assumptions about Black American identities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you wanted to unpack them. And the first was around water and swimming. Can you take oh, us yeah. through that? Well, one of the things I wanted to say to you was I, I really appreciate that you said Black American identities rather than identity. Because... That was something that I had to switch into saying after my journey. I just assumed with regards to water that black people just didn't like to swim. (laughs) When I grew up, where I grew up, we always make jokes about black people not swimming. Oftentimes those jokes were macabre because it was either black people don't swim because of our hair or because we don't (laughs) swim because we weren't learned. We didn't learn and we could drown. And it wasn't until I went into the low country, which if you've ever been to low country, South Carolina, Georgia, I believe is one of the most beautiful places in the United States, Mm. but the land and the water are right next to each other. And Queen Quet, um, who is the chief priestess of of Gullah Geechee nation, um, the queen of Gullah Geechee nation, she actually said that uh, the water is our bloodline. And, and so when I realized that, and when I actually spoke to Gullah Geechee non-institutional activists and learned that that wasn't always the case, I started to, I started to ask myself, well, how did this contention begin? And when I started to research that there were institutional forces, um, and of course, you know, institutional forces that aligned with white supremacy, 
that influence our connection to water, that's when I realized that it's much more complex than I thought. Mm. I actually had to stop reading and put mm. the book down for a minute to just like, t- it was so powerful. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, um, it t- took me right there. And I totally understood things in a way I, I really never had. So I'd love well, for you to okay. sort of unpack it for the listeners. Water is very important in African-American memory. One of the reasons why is because think about the transatlantic slave trade. The transatlantic slave trade, when when West Africans were captured and they were brought across the Atlantic Ocean, many did not survive. And so there, there are quite a few historians who say that the Atlantic Ocean is actually a quote unquote floating graveyard, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's also that. And, and with regards to contention with the water, there were many Af- West Africans who were great swimmers, but when slavery started to started to really get heavy in those areas, the slave trade, many parents did not let their children go near the water because they were afraid that they would never see them again. And it was interesting because when my mother grew up on a barrier island. She grew up on an Atlantic City. And when my, I asked my mother, how was that neither you nor your siblings nor your parents um, learned she said it's because I think they were afraid of, of, of losing us, which is eerie, don't you think? Like mm. over, almost 400 years mm. between a sla- you know, the slave trade and we have this conversation and parents are still afraid of losing something. The water constitutes loss. From Wandering in Strange Lands, page 50. I remember as a child, an older woman who liked to dress in vibrant colors came to our South Jersey church one day. In a matter of weeks, people suspected that she was involved with roots and witchcraft because she kept doing things with her hands, moving them around in circular motions and making designs with her fingers in her lap. Another single woman visited my church and people also suspected her of practicing witchcraft. There was never an explanation as to why. Once the rumor dispersed among the congregation, the woman left as unexpectedly as she came. Whenever someone in my community couldn't explain a sudden illness or a run of bad luck, it was assumed that someone had put a root on that person. One of the things that was also very contested when I grew up was the idea of root work, um, the idea of conjure. When I grew up, that was considered demonic. But at the same time, the people I knew who said that, they also believed in it was powerful, right? Root doctors and root workers, they come out of a long tradition. As you may or may not know, uh, Black people couldn't always go to the doctor, whether it's because they couldn't afford it or because the doctor wouldn't see them because they were they, they, they were Black. So they relied on people in their community um, to help them with anything from healing to putting hexes on people to making the others fall in love with them, et cetera, et cetera. And those, that, that was the nature of the root doctors and the root workers in the community. Now, where the contradictions started to happen, especially in my family, for example, with regards to acknowledging that it exists, what I was saying is demonic, was when Black people started to migrate to the North, for example, and they started to get better jobs and started to and started to, you know, make a better life for themselves sort of financially, they were in these cosmopolitan cities and they started to actually see institutional doctors, institutionally trained doctors. And because of that, they started to look at root doctors and root workers as backwards. 
um, as something of the past. That's where this split happened. But even if you look at history on, on the plantation, root work and, and root and, and root doctors, they existed at the same time as Christianity. There was there, there didn't there was no divorcing of the two. And so when I went down to the low country, I, I mean, I'm telling you, there was no combativeness between, for example, Christianity, which a lot of them down there, uh, that that's what they practice and also root work or hoodoo. Hmm. There was, they, 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 it was perfectly aligned because they were so attuned to the land. Many of them are knew where their ancestors were enslaved. They've been on the same land as their ancestors for many, many years. And so they, they had this relationship to the land and the soil and the herbs and the crops that I didn't. Mm-hmm. And so when they spoke of it, they spoke of it with, with, with reverence, but also with fear because you never know who could, you know, put a root on you, as you, as they say, um, and it's not something to be played with. But it wasn't something to be to, say, to demonize either. In fact, I would even argue that to say to demonize root work is a form of white supremacy as well, because that's a tool that many of our ancestors used to survive. Hmm. Yeah, it's also you know uh, I love the natural instinct to have this great reverence for the land, which mm-hmm. everyone should have. But we don't. Um, but right. that's that survived. And the sad thing is, I'm not going to lie to you. I remember when I was traveling, I felt so ashamed. And I felt so ashamed because I would be passing all of this flora and fauna and I couldn't name any of it. I, I could probably name probably one tree, one or two trees and maybe two flowers. And I was like, that's all. I, I was all. And I felt so bad. But then I was like, well, because I moved away. My family moved away. Mm-hmm. We, I wasn't taught farming or anything like that. But it's still, it, it was a sore point. Yeah. So can you talk about, uh, tell us who Dr. Buzzard is? Dr. Buzzard was one of the most famous, if not the famous uh, root doctor in the country. Perhaps the world. Mm-hmm. Um, he was based in, um, in the low country, South Carolina. And... He was referenced a lot when I went to, uh, for example, St. Helena. I remember I was sitting out on a dock with a woman who who was a Gullah Geechee woman. And she was telling me about, you know, his, you know, his bloodline and how her family was connected to him. And yeah, it was, he, he, he was well known, internationally known. Mm. What were some of the things that he did? Oh, man. Some of the things that, so what I heard uh, Dr. Buzzer would do, oh, God. I don't <laughs> even know if I should be talking about it. But um, Dr. Buzzer had something called chewing the root. Chewing the root. And what he would, and what that would be was that um, Chewing on a piece of root in order, like let's say, if you had a court case um, and something was going wrong, um, and he would chew the root in order to like confuse like the juries or to you know overturn convictions or have or, or to make or to make sure the sentences weren't as harsh. Mm. Um, that was what chewing the root was. Time for a short break. When we come back, Morgan goes on a historical tour and discovers an upsetting truth. Stick around. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome back to Bookable. I'm Amanda Stern, here with Morgan Jerkins, author of Wandering in Strange Lands. For the book, Morgan did a lot of traveling. And while she was on the road, she ran into jarring example after jarring example of just how often painful periods in Black history are not only unacknowledged, but romanticized. On Hill and Head, there are these gated communities and they're actually called plantations, which because they sit on the on the land of when there was former plantations. So which is absurd to me. But what that demonstrates is this sort of romantic nostalgia for the antebellum. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and one of the things that was very uh, jarring for me as I was traveling into venturing into Illinois was there were so many other places that was named plantation, like Plantation Cafe, Plantation Grill, Plantation Cabinetry, Plantation Road. And it was <laughs> like, how can you name all of these different places a site that constitutes horrific brutalities and inhumane treatment of Black people? And that was the dissonance, I think, that just lasted for the amount of time that I was there. Yeah. I, you know, I I was thinking about the fact that it's a vacation spot. And I've had people say to me that they did not know that Gullah Geechee people, you know, they were abundant on that island. You know, they were responsible for the they were responsible for so much on that island. A lot of people don't know that a lot of people don't know that you know, the the, the the huge golf corner tournaments that take place there, people's answers are buried either, they're buried near or underneath that, that those golf courses. Uh, and so that, but that just, what that demonstrates is just a devaluing of black lives that we're still seeing today. Certain people's lives and histories are not valued as others. And black, and that's, you know, with regards to black people, that that's a demonstration of that. And so when I went there, I thought about, for example, heirs' property, where property is passed down from Black people, generation to generation, but there's no written will, which leaves them vulnerable to property developers, for example, or other rich people can come in and take the land if they wanted to in many different ways. And there are efforts to try to get, you know, Black people, particularly Gullah people, to preserve their land. But I think about how so much land loss has been has happened, black land loss since since the Civil War. I think 90 percent has been lost or some people might say robbed, depending Mm -hmm. on who you ask. And Hilton Head is one of the one of the examples 
of that. Um, a lot of people can't hold on to the land down there. Mm, right. And people just get di- displaced and pushed to the margins. Yeah. Yep. And you went on a tour of a uh-huh. plantation. Will you, will you talk about that? I didn't go on a tour in South Carolina. I went on, I went on a tour in Louisiana and I went on a, 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 a solo tour um, in, in Georgia. When I went to Butler Island Plantation, Butler Island Plantation is located um, in McIntosh County, Georgia. That's a low country. Um, and when you go there, there is one historical marker and it talks about a, a writer named Fanny Kimball who documented her experiences there. And when I, the woman who showed me this plantation, she's actually a descendant of enslaved people who worked there. And what she said to me was that she had been trying to get an historical marker for years and couldn't get one. Hmm. So if you go to this rice plantation, you would just think that it was just a place where rice was cultivated without no regard for who, who risked their lives, who sacrificed their lives to cultivate that rice. There's no acknowledgement of the enslaved people there the toil, the the stakes, because if, because if you research the the slave mortality rates on rice plantations, it was just tremendous. Mm. Um, and so that is something that I was like, this is another problem with history and documentation, right? Is that you have a woman who is a non institutional activist who who do, who does these tours. In order to tell people the real truth, because if you just look at the historical markers, it's to, oh, it's a writer came here and wrote about her experiences. Nothing else. Mm-hmm. When I went on the plantation tour in Louisiana, um, I went with a descendant of a free woman of color and her son who owned the plantation. And they were just like a footnote in the history. A footnote. Mm-hmm. They were talked about in the beginning, and that was it. The rest was talked about, you know, how a white woman came and turned it into an artist retreat. There was mention of um, a famous black woman muralist um, named Clementine Hunter. But there was, but the, imagine being a descendant of someone who owned this plantation, and not much is said about your people. In fact, her family didn't even have money. Her family purposely didn't go on these plantation tours because they knew that it was not correct history. From Wandering in Strange Lands, page 144, there was a loud tap on the page. His finger was underneath a line that told me that Armstead, listed as a free man of color, was given a plantation by his mother, Carrie. I squinted at the document, and it read exactly as the stranger said. Antoine pulled out his camera and asked the stranger to repeat what he just found. My family was not made up only of free people of color. Some of them were slave owners, complicating what I thought about my own history. There it was, a decree in cursive handwriting, a plantation. I didn't know what to do with that information. Tracy and Richie urged me to find out which plantation it was, but then what? Would I go visit? Would I subject myself to a plantation tour as Tracy had done in Melrose and listen to some white girl gloss over the history of my family? Not all of my ancestors were enslaved. 
Some of my ancestors were free people of color and some of them owned slaves themselves. And that was very disheartening for me mm-hmm. because of a couple things. Well, the way you know, I, I am a product of the public school system and the way that I was taught about African-American history, not histories, right. was that, you know, your ancestors came over, your ancestors were captured and enslaved. They came from West Africa. They, you know, you know, were enslaved until the emancipation. You had the Reconstruction era, Harlem Renaissance, civil rights, and then Obama. I was <laughs> never, no, but seriously. Sorry, it sorry. Was it was, no, but no, but that's it. But that's, you know, I know. Time, but that's what it was. It was like, at a certain moment in history, white equals master, black equals slave. And that is it. It was a strict dichotomy. When you go to Louisiana, for example, you realize that's not the case. You realize that there were different categorizations of people besides just white and black. Um, You realize that even those who had African ancestry, they had certain access to power, certain type of social and financial capital that was different from other people who had other kinds of African ancestors. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So when I went to so for example, when I when I, when I learned was that Creole is actual is an actual identity, and it, at one point in time had legal and social implications. And it's not just uppity black people who don't want to be considered black. No, this is a people who are the descendants of French people, Spanish people, African people, and Choctaw Indian, and they and they occupied a certain a certain milieu. In society, not so much anymore, but it's important to talk about it because if because as I mentioned in the book, there's a lot of erasure that's happening. I just want listeners to know that everything is a cycle in this country with regards to black people. So when we think about the protests that happened, when we think about the, the state violence against black people, we're not really reckoning with what this country has done to black people. I even think about the 1619 backlash. We're not reckoning with it. And I think that it's so important that we do. Um, and so I want people to read this book with an open mind. I want people to over, the, for them to understand that documentation is not the end all be all, especially with historically disenfranchised communities like black people. And, you know, to just keep an open mind. That's what I would say. And when you say we're not reckoning, what is your definition of reckoning? What would that look like? Reckoning, well, I would just say under knowing the history first and foremost, because it's not really taught, but also making changes and moving forward. We can't really move forward unless we look backward and understand there's a historical precedent for all that's happening right now. Morgan Jerkins, author of Wandering in Strange Lands, a daughter of the Great Migration Reclaims Her Roots. It's published by Harper Perennial and is available now. Bookable is a production of Loud Tree Media. I'm your host, Amanda Stern. Five feet tall and changing my name to Dr. Buzzard, Stern. We're produced by me, Bo Friedlander, and Andrew Dunn, who also mixed and sound designed the show. Bo is Loudtree's editor-in-chief. Find us on the web at bookablepod.com and please subscribe and rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. And if you want to learn more about our guests, find us on Instagram at bookablepod and follow me, your host, at a little stern. This is Bookable. 